Welcome to SimTalk, a member of the Broken Jars podcast network. My name is Benjamin Schumann, and today I'm talking to an experienced simulation consultant. I ran across him a few years ago, I think at the AnyLogic conference in San Francisco, uh, when he worked at PwC already. Today he's a senior manager with them in London. Uh, welcome to SimTalk, Artem Parakain. Hello, thanks for having me. First of all, did I actually pronounce the surname correct? Yeah, no, it's, it was very close. <laughs> Good, <laughs> I'm relieved. Um, so Artem works for PwC, but obviously, just to to make this clear right at the start, all everything he says here is his own opinion; doesn't have anything to do with his employer. Uh, with this out of the way, Artem, why don't you start us off with telling us a little bit about your background story up until you came across simulation in your life, just so people get to know you. Okay. Um, okay. So I'll probably start with my um, education background is um, so my university education is actually in software engineering. So I um, I started an in industry as a as a as a coder, and I worked um, on um, uh, on systems that were supporting um, kind of uh, complex uh, business processes in in. Uh, um, fin finance associated with uh, travel, um, airline bookings, and things like that. So, like, um, you, you hit me right up my sweet spot already. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, we aim to please at PwC. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did. So I did that for quite a long time, and uh, eventually I got. Um, I kind of thought that uh, you know. In my experience, I found that when you're dealing with systems, especially large systems, code bases, very, very big code bases that span multiple organizations, creating kind of sustainable change forward is very, very hard, which is why you find situations where you are stuck with dealing with some kind of system that a narrow line has been using since the 80s. And, um, you know, you have to kind of Everything, everything new that you do has to carry the baggage and pay the kind of technical debt incurred by that system. Um, and um, and even though you could see the path to change, it's very hard to convince people about that change without by just talking or using PowerPoint slides or visio diagrams or something like that. And so that's kind of my first brush with simulation. Is that my my first kind of attempts at it was to kind of show how the change would affect multiple parties. And was it somebody introducing it to you or did it just come as a revelation in the shower, oh, there should be something like simulation? Um, well, no, it's actually, it's actually based on, uh, I was at the time I was, um, I was in University of Technology of Sydney and there was a group there called Architecture Based Engineering Group that was specifically aimed at, um, actually kind of trying to put rigor and analysis behind the general enterprise architecture approach to system design back then. And one of the kind of work streams within that group was actually um, using the information collected during an architecture, uh, enterprise architecture exercise. So something that's based like on TOGAF network. If you look at the stuff that is collected during a TOGAF exercise, it's actually quite voluminous. What is that? Sorry, I have never heard of that. TOGAF. Um, uh, TOGAF is, let me just see what it actually stands for. 
the full um, um, the full acronym. It's the the Open Group Architecture Framework. So for for an enterprise architecture, this is kind of the exercise where they collect they 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 walk the full the full stack of the of of an enterprise uh, system. So they look at the actual hardware, the software, the functional points, the data that's required at different points and it's created, the business processes, the people, the geography, the commercials, the legal. So it's the whole enterprise architecture, right? Of okay. which sounds... software is one component. So it's it's like a whole industry, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's quite a it's quite a um, you know mature industry. But these people that I happen to know in UTS, they were all kind of focusing on uh, enterprise architecture, and they had this. They've developed this tool called Abacus, um, and part of that tool is actually simulation. So when they collect all that information during that um, architecture exercise, they then kind of uh, build a discrete event uh, simulation, and they kind of show that this much activity at different points in the system will use your resources this way. So um, their point of using that was to actually assure what's called a non-functional properties of the system. Mm -hmm. So obviously like if you want to see whether your system is resilient, you can't just go and break the system and see if it works. Although, you know, I think that's what Netflix does these days in their whole chaos-based chaos engineering department. Oh, really? But, do, you have, do you have bad experience with that? With no, that? no, no. Well, it's, it's, just, it's just a field that I'm interested in. But okay. Back then, back then, the only way to kind of say, well, here's the structure, you know, these are all the boxes, and this, this is how they connect, and this is how information flows. What if we break this box, you know? What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. How will the system degrade? And they were using discrete event for that. Um, cool. and, I, and I kind of, I mean, this was my... This was I was still at uni back then when I was also working uh, in travel industry, and it kind of caught my eye, and I was like, "That's actually a great idea because you start with like the top line things like you know safety, availability, reliability, resilience, those things, but you can there's a lot of other things that you can consider, you know, like flexibility, you know, uh, how easy it is to change, how how easy it is to um, you know, scale it along the number of functions you want to do or no, along the number of customers you're going to do. Um, at which point does it make sense that to, to restructure the system? Like all those questions can be answered with um, with uh, simulation. So that's kind of how I got interested in that. Mm -hmm. And then um, um, one of the people in that group, um, he basically said, well, you know, these are all great thoughts but do you want to like do you want to actually do a phd um and explore that whole idea more how because because when you actually think about it if you represent the system faithfully in some kind of generic structure and then you figure out kind of scenarios to how that system can change as a result of some external drivers like um you know changes in commercial structure or acquisition by another company or maybe expansion in another market, um, then you can basically optimize, you can figure out a way to optimize an enterprise architecture based on those drivers using simulation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what my the topic of my PhD was. I was trying, 
I think it was titled um, uh, you know, Optimization Guidance of Architectural Optimization Guidance of Complex Computer-Based Systems. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that's a bit of a mouthful. What kind of um, enterprise sizes were you looking at? Was it just huge global conglomerates or when would it be interesting for me as a company? Um, it would be, yeah, it, it essentially it doesn't have to be huge global, but any organization big enough, like, you know, any, 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 anybody who has, you know, more than one SAP, for example, mm -hmm. SAP installation, or anybody who, you know, in any, in any big enough organization, you take like, I don't know, a bank or something like that, uh, they will have core systems, they will have regulatory systems, they will have um, kind of local systems, and all of that stuff is constantly evolving at different rates, and nobody's really, you know, have got the handle on managing it properly. So other stuff, you know, create, kind of emerges like shadow IT, you know, those kinds of concepts where, and um, where, whereby, you know, parts of the problem are not addressed by the systems that exist. So people start creating their own systems and it's, and it's this whole keeping a handle on, on all of that is actually quite, quite hard. And kind of that's kind of, that's what the enterprise architecture field is interested mm -hmm. in but a lot of the really big changes are avoided because the risk of them is so high um, and the way to figure out whether you know how to avoid that risk is, is so hard that um, in you know using conventional ways that that nobody does anything you know people people avoid people just avoid change and I and I kind of thought that hey you know maybe by combining simulation with some um, data mining so that you can actually collect data from individual systems to build a simulation mm -hmm. um, with some graph theory as well um, and some Bayesian theory you can you can sort of get a more or less you know you want to alleviate risk completely but you can you can probably figure out the the most likely and least likely things to happen as a result of certain action. Does that include like automatic simulation model building yes. based on data? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, the as part of my doctorate, I actually built an, an engine in any logic actually. Mm -hmm. So that's that's also when I started using any logic because at the time it was the only tool that um, that had both discrete event and agent based um, uh, paradigms. That could be that could exist in a single model and interact with each other. What time are we talking about? When was it? Uh, this was 2006, I think. 2005, mm -hmm. even. Yeah. And how do you? I, I find this quite an interesting philosophical topic. The question: Can we build useful simulation models automatically from some data? I think Simio recently, in one of their recent releases, had that feature. Or maybe Simulate. I can't remember. Where if you give it a, a well-formatted Excel file that is following their strict formatting rules, then it can turn it into a, an automatic simulation model quite easily. Mm. How do you see that entire space? How what do you is that the future? Uh, it's it's definitely part of the future. It will definitely have a space in the future because I I got it working on a number of projects and in my PhD. Um, admittedly, the generative part was very very hard. Um, at the time, and it did require, it wasn't complete, it did require a lot of post-production by a person, mm -hmm. namely me, 
but it did create a lot of things for me that if I was to do manually would have taken months. Okay, well, what are we talking about specifically then in terms of enterprise architecture? Yeah, so, I mean, it created, because I know I was actually, I worked out sort of, um, you know, um, I don't know, um, uh, you know, any logic is based on the concept of agents and populations and connections and you can, you know, you can create things programmatically there mm-hmm. once the model starts. So I had, I've created essentially archetypes of um, certain types of systems like, you know, um, user facing things, middleware things, um, uh, database things. And um, it just so happened that in software, obviously there is this overarching concern of separation of uh, separation of responsibility. So, most systems are actually designed with that in mind. So if you collect information across the whole kind of transaction life cycle from when the person shows up and there's a certain behavior of a person, the way that interface interprets their behavior, the way that middleware is given the information, the way that middleware converts it to data footprint, the way that the data footprint is used in other processes, and the way the database takes care of that, um, if you kind of design the canonical parts of it, you can then basically take a whole bunch of information across multiple systems, massage it a bit, generate the simulation, see what it does, compare the outputs of that to what to the to the holdout set of data, and then if that validates, you, you've got yourself a system. And then you can start going, well, what if I have an extra database? Mm-hmm. What if I have, you know, what if I split this middleware into in this way? So that you know things that things that are fast access, uh, fast frequent access are taken care of separately, and really complex stuff is done in the handover. You know what happens then, and in that process, I've discovered. So I've actually were looking as part of my doctorate. I was looking at a particular problem that has occurred in the company I was working at, and they were quite keen to go with a rather large change mm-hmm. and in the simulation i basically kind of um saw that actually there's a few smaller changes that could have done and uh that would have actually achieved a positive outcome and the the big change they actually did that did not work that well no no that that still worked so okay. that's the thing like they really kind of modeled nature of it all is that it is it was still like what they did still worked mm-hmm. um, and in fact because I was still in the company back then I managed to affect a lot of that stuff um, and be part of the process and some of the learnings from my doctorate obviously went into my work um, but they could have been other things they could have done and they would have achieved um, quite a lot of the benefit without large profound change. When you say that um, generative simulation modeling will be part of the future, how do you see it? What exactly will it look like? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have a few sort of high level theories, but mostly what I think it is, is um, it's, a, it's essentially there is we we we've kind of approached we we kind of 
live in a very new world and and I think a lot of people haven't noticed it is that <laughs> is that a lot of our processes are already automated to some degree mm-hmm. and um we're now kind of getting into situations where you can go through certain pathways within an enterprise when you when you interact with them as a customer or as a as an employee where you're you're not actually you're doing quite complex things but you're you're not there's no single human that you're interacting with mm-hmm. and um so in the but, example of netflix just to bring it back to reality when i watch a movie it then automatically suggests the next movie yeah, yeah. being actually thinking for that but it also but when you think about it other things that are being checked like you know whether you have a valid account where you are geographically and what kind of content can you watch due to the agreements and trademarks and copyrights mm-hmm. yeah. um you know where you are you know what what is your history and and sort of um what what content are you allowed to see uh based on the local rating uh, in terms of you know um you know adult content or or th- those kinds of things um so there's actually a lot of there's like a huge layer of stuff that happens that that is not done by humans anymore you know very good point yeah now that you put it that way actually that typical argument you often hear that the robots will take all our jobs if you think about it actually you know software has already taken so many jobs or didn't allow jobs to even pop up and still we're doing fairly well i would say on the yeah uh, it's actually quite um robots will take i i mean i i personally actually haven't seen how the robots take over jobs because um you know obviously part of a consultant job is to try and help companies transform um i realized that you know they do take jobs but they also make jobs yeah and the issue is that no one can tell that until it's too late i think sometimes is that you know they change they completely change a profile of somebody's requirement required kind of abilities and and function within the company but that person is not told until it's too late you know um so that's that's kind of where the conflict often arises but anyway that's not that's not really the topic the topic is generative stuff yeah um but anyway and um and the things that i've seen that in some places you can now collect enough information across multiple systems that are engaging in this complex handovers and and um you know life cycle of an interaction with a human or delivering a service of some kind that you can extract that information chain it together and then map it to some kind of archetypes of activity you know and those archetypes haven't changed you know the it's just like in any logic you have a business process library um it's what two dozen components in there out of which one dozen is pretty much any kind of component any kind of activity that takes place in an in, in a uh, in a company can be represented in some way or another yeah and i actually think that that mapping is the tricky part and just like other things in in where automation stepped in um we will not be kind of able to do the whole task 100% accurately straight away but ultimately i think it's possible to achieve that so how can i imagine that envision that are you saying that maybe uh in a decades time we'll have some algorithms that just look at some enterprise data transactional data whatever and then suggests a simulation model and basically 
uh, maps that data to specific objects in, in the software that we use? Yep, that's cool. exactly what I meant. <laughs> Good, that's <laughs> what on that. Um, but then my next question would be, you know, it suggests something, it's a good old AI conundrum, but how do I know how it came up with that conclusion? So, I mean, that's a great, that's also a great uh, conundrum, is that um, um, it's all about goal seeking, I think. So the one the one thing I teach people in PwC, you know, when, they, when, when I have a fresh person, like a senior associate or something that I need to teach simulation is that, you know, your your first um, instinct is going to be to simulate everything at, to as much detail as you can, as possible. Mm -hmm. And in reality, you always have to focus on the problem you're trying to solve, because if you do, you will realize that you don't need to boil the ocean. You know, you can just simulate the parts of the system that are touched by that activity. You can abstract the others to the reasonable level, exercise your judgment where you can, ask me where you can't, and then the outcome of that is going to be an analytically useful model built in a reasonable amount of time on some perhaps imperfect data. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that process that's where, obviously, the, you know, I don't think AI will, will be able to solve all of that, but there are aspects of it which can be done especially when you're dealing with a large amount of data extracted from systems that can totally, you can have like a little software assistance and it's like, Oh, you know, I see you doing, you know, it's like a little clippy from the old days of Microsoft Word. You know, I see, I see, I see you building the simulation of a mine. Do you have trucks? You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. I would love to have clippy back in any month. Awesome. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it doesn't mean like, again, it's like, it doesn't mean that, um, it's, it, it's going to be, um, uh, simple and easy and, and, uh, and, um, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to stop everything and work on that. I mean, I think learning through doing is the, is the way to actually find these, um, archetypes of behavior, archetypes of objects, um, um, but it's it's kind of simple. It's kind of similar to uh, you know the architectural patterns and or software design patterns in mm -hmm. the, the the gang of four book you know like decorator and stuff like that where people you know same same story they looked at certain functional requirements certain structural um, desirable characteristics and came up with a software pattern. For would you say would you say that is a, a task of the simulation software vendors that they have to build that into the software? Was it um, more of others adding that on top and selling that to simulation practitioners? I don't actually think the software vendors can do that because they're vendors of tools. They um they are um they don't build the simulations in the field as much. Um, you know, it's it's. Um, I mean, I find I find that. Um, you know, any logic guys, they, they, for example, they, they, they really care about making a responsive interface, making, taking care of developer experience, creating usable objects, but fundamentally, you know, um, it, it's the practitioners like you and I are the ones who actually um, know how to, you know, drive that car around the track and win the Grand Prix, no? <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're the engineering team, we're the drivers, you know, but and the both are equally important. 
But that then sounds like everybody's going to start cooking his or her own soup. And then maybe yeah. in a couple of years' time, it will sort of emerge that underlying thing that everybody uses. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly, I mean, I completely agree. It's like, a, it's going to be, I think we will experience some kind of Cambrian explosion of different flavors and things. And it's just going to be like a giant, you know, we, soup. And then eventually we'll all find out that we've been uh, just making the same soup all the time, just slightly more salt in one place, slightly less chicken in another, you know, that kind of stuff. I love how we are moving to <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, let me take that segue that you took earlier when you mentioned PwC. So we've spoken about you working uh, with or for Abacus doing your PhD. I think yep. you also worked for them after your PhD, right? Yeah, briefly, yes. And how did you then move on to PwC? Well, so I didn't actually um, start doing simulation in PwC. Firstly, I've started working in a an engineering consultancy, mm-hmm. um, which at the time was called Amazon Pack. And um, they found me through some people I knew, and especially around, they, they were using Neologic at the time as well. And um, they approached it from a different side. So they were all engineers and uh, they approached it from problem statement side. So um, they were not software engineers though. And at the time, any logic required, you know, if, in order to make it um, work very well, with, especially with external databases, um, any logic required a bit of Java knowledge. So I started helping them out sort of just with that work. Um, uh, just quick question, uh, Amazon Pack, any affiliation with actual Amazon? With who, sorry? W- with actual Amazon. Oh, no, no, sorry. No, it's not Amazon Pack. It's Evans. Ah. In oh, Evans Pack. So, yeah. Pack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Sorry. Sorry for my... For, uh, my... And Evans and Pack is, a, is a, like an Australian consulting firm, right? Yes. Yeah, it's an Australian consultancy. Um, they've since got acquired by uh, a bigger company called Worley Parsons, and they changed their name to um, Advisian, I think. Um, and... Um, but yeah, so in while I was there, we, we built, you know, some simulations. Um, I worked for uh, just, you know, mining companies. You know, Australia is a commodity country, so we worked for mining companies and um, uh, rail operators and um, ship operators and um, transport agencies, you know, just the bread and butter of uh, engineering consultancies, really. I'm, I'm interested because uh, I saw these kind of models you presented at one of those conferences a few years back where trains drive across Australia and stuff. And yeah. I loved it because these applications are so tangible. How did you find it coming from an enterprise architecture world, which to me is uh, relatively abstract to this real physical things moving around world? Um, yeah, it was very refreshing. It was, uh, no, it was. I mean, we on on almost every job, I had a chance to go to um, to the place where the things are actually happening, you know. And I went to see like large, you know. I went to a power station once. It was the biggest power station in in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went to a train yard. So I saw I saw like how the train yards operate, and it does make it uh, because a lot of that stuff is actually. Um, uh, it's it's almost like unwritten rules. Stuff is not recorded properly 
because it's been around for so long that anybody who has education in that space would know it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and me coming from software engineering background, I didn't. So just going there and seeing those things being kind of made me understand the context a little more, which I actually think made me better, um, you know, made me better able to build simulation models. Yeah. That's one of the things I always push when I have a new client. Um, if they are reluctant, I say, I have to come see whatever I'm modeling. Yeah. I, I have to. There's no way around it. There's so much in, intrinsic, implicit knowledge floating around when you talk to people, when you see the process. Super, super useful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, I mean, and, and when we went, so when I, when I switched, when I switched over to like more engineering oriented um, stuff, uh, that was a big thing for me because although I did study, so in the first two years of engineering degree in, in, in my university, you, you kind of do the same stuff as every other engineer. So I had a lot of kind of basics knowledge, but then obviously I didn't have a kind of developed knowledge in that, in those areas. So being able to go there and relate um, was very helpful. Cool. How long did you stay yeah. with them? What kind of stuff did you do? Uh, you helped, you said you helped out with the software engineering bit to get the yeah. models going, but did you also actually model for them? Yeah, so I started off with software engineering bits and then as a contractor while well, I was finishing up my doctorate and I just needed some extra income. And then after that, I joined them full time and just, uh, yeah, they just did studies, you know, for clients, you know, somebody wants to expand the mine um, and they go like, okay, well, we're going to build it. We're going to have this mine that's bigger. This is the contract that the rail operator is telling us that they can fulfill. Um, you know, what, what, what should our loading facility look like and what should our storage facility look like to be able to kind of join those two things together effectively. Did the clients uh, actively ask for simulations or did they yeah. just ask for solutions? Yeah, I mean, more often than not they did because it was, you know, the decisions were just enormously expensive and irreversible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually, that's another thing that I've, learned from then and use have been using like once i moved to pwc is that you always the simulation is the only rational as well as cost effective choice when you're dealing with things which are irreversible and Mm -hmm. and you need and you need them to be to work and to be sticky so people don't just kind of you know ignore whatever you're trying to do Every other time, you can probably get away with other kinds of tools, you know, that are cheaper and faster, um, and more abstract and less precise. But with the simulation, you, you know, it it is expensive and it takes a long time and it requires quite a lot of, I mean, faith because sometimes you build models and they just, um, they go so against people's um, built-up uh, instincts mm-hmm. right, and intuition. And it and requ- and so it's a really hard work to actually basically convince them that it's not, I'm not wrong, you know, I've done, I've, I've done what it's doing. And, uh, and, and it's quite confronting sometimes because they, they just, people, you know, especially people um, that have been working somewhere for a long time, they've built up kind of a collection of heuristics and anecdotes and mm-hmm. beliefs about the system, which probably were correct or even are correct a lot of times but the times when it breaks is when the system 
is is what they're trying to catch and that is when the simulation is quite helpful and what's your secret sauce in such situations uh the secret sauce is um um is to actually not just so the first instinct is or actually the first stage i i, I kind of think about it as, as like two stages or three stages two and a half really the first one is to information so pump pump people for information basically what do they do what's going on in their world what are they responsible for what data they collect how they measure what their kpis are as, as people the, or as the a human thing. side just the relate side, to them yeah. and talk 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 yeah 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 uh -huh. and once you get that you start going okay, well, what do you think about those guys over there? Do they influence you? So you, you kind of try to understand how they think they fit in the rest of their world. Mm -hmm. And then once you understand that, the third one is you basically go, well, tell me about the things that keep you up at night, you know? Mm -hmm. The things that you yourself are not sure about or they're hard to explain or you have theory about but you're not sure, you know, because that very often that's actually really helpful guide in focusing your simulation efforts so you're not doing the whole system but you just but you make sure you address the things that they've noticed because they're there you know 24 hours a day that's their job you know and they can very quickly point you to some things that you should watch out for yeah i like that you mentioned earlier already uh, that strong focus when you build a simulation model to not boil the ocean but focus yeah. on the the critical areas so you already said one way to find out those critical areas is to talk to people. Uh, how else do you do it? Because I, I have a conundrum every, in every project as well. And people already also have preconceived notions of what should be modeled and what not. And you want to you wanna have a, like a fresh view. So how do you handle that? So, so um, I find, I, I try to um, frame the gap. So in every situation there is essentially the bottom-up and top-down view of the system. Mm -hmm. The, the bottom-up is any records you collect from systems or logs or what, what, what have you, you know, whatever it gets collected. And the, and the top-down is the KPIs. It's the, it's the way that people get paid their bonuses. It's the way that their performance is measured and stuff like that. And very often, if you find the information that is missing from the KPI, um, because they always will be, um, and if you find the way, up, and if you cannot find the path by which that information is mapped to your logs, that is the part you need to simulate. That is because that's essentially where knowledge is assumed and anecdotes exist, but no one is. It's not recorded anywhere with any faithful recollection of what's actually going on. Right. That, that sounds super interesting. I haven't heard this approach before. Can we try to put this into a real-life example, maybe with Netflix again? So I'm a Netflix, uh, I don't know, software builder. I've got my KPIs, so I need to deliver, I don't know, 10,000 lines of code in a year or whatever, or only 10 bucks. How does that map to finding out what should be simulated then? Well, um Essentially, you look at, you know, where does the person sit, right? Which part of the system that they're affecting? How many other people are working on the same system? Um, how many business processes um, are supported by the system? And you look at their KPIs. You look at, well, what's their profitability, for example? 
what is their exposure, what is their reliability, how much effort they had to spend maintaining that in, after it's been released. And then you basically go, well, you know, dude, you, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're a person that is trying to push out this much code a year. Um, if you actually do half of that, but you um, take into account to start working from the most critical down to least critical, that gives you certain advantages. So mm -hmm. you basically, it means that every, you know, once you take care of the of the most critical part, every line of code after that becomes easier. For example, like I'm not sure that's how it's actually going to work out because obviously they have a very distributed kind of environment. And but, in that situation, you would then say, what I need to simulate is the way uh, that you that you solve problems. And I'm going to, the, the what if in the simulation is going to be, what if you start doing the most critical problems first? Yeah, yeah. What if you prioritize work instead of just doing stuff that you're told? What if you actually, you know, look at a context and prioritize work based on that, for example? That's a very super, super interesting way of figuring out what to simulate. Can you maybe share another example from your from your recent work or from longer ago? Um, yeah, yeah. So, for example, so we worked on one particular model um, for one of the mining companies that was looking to um, introduce um, a new kind of signaling along their rail line that was um, that was uh, spanning something odd 500 kilometers or so of mm -hmm. um, Australian desert and uh, you know obviously there's a very remote you know they had an existing signaling system on trains uh, sorry on on the train line and um, and they were looking to put new kind of signaling in place so that they could create what's called virtual um, blocks of uh, track so that empty trains could actually run closer to each other because they have shorter stop stopping distance, they are lighter. And then heavier trains, you could you could kind of um, run them in tandem. You could create like a few of them and they would behave very close to each other uh, as well. So, in, so the trains would start slowing down at the same time and speeding up at the same time. So you had like a very high, highly advanced digital system. Mm -hmm. And um, so we had a look at that, and obviously in order to do that, you had to look at how the things are right now, and then uh, try and go like, well, what if these guys don't wait for each other to clear the signal areas, but actually start running together? And um, as part of that, we actually had to look at um, kind of, you know, the, the, the constraints of that. You know, the first question is like, well, okay, you know, we can, in a very simple scenario, we can show that you can run three times the amount of traffic along this quite simply. It was a very simple simulation. And then we go like, okay, well, what if, but what are the constraints of this? You know, what is the actual interface of these two constraining factors? And they said, oh, okay, well, the yard is a constraint because it's operated on its own rules and, you know, trains that come in have to be serviced in a certain way because they're very heavy and they're very long and it's very hot and they have to be separated and shunted around and then they have to be like re-welded because the weight itself like deforms the iron of the wagons. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and we looked at that and said, well, okay, if we just look do this back of the napkin, it's it's clear that your current system can actually support more traffic than you do now. Why aren't you pushing more traffic already? And uh, we had a look, and it turned out that in the yard they um, they they had these little tractors that pull the wagons around when they separate the trains for a service. Mm -hmm. And um, if they just got an extra tractor, they would be able to meet quite a lot of their capacity requirements. Oh. <laughs> that was it. You know, you didn't you didn't need. I mean, you would need the uh, obviously the in cab the 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 digital signal system eventually. But that need was actually quite further away. They had a lot more time than they thought they did if they just yeah. took care of the constraints on the other sides of that system. That sounds really cool. What did they say? Did they buy one? Um, no, it's, it, it was it was an inside. It was it was quite easily kind of a, you know not quite, but it was explainable, which was very important. Um, it also was in line with some people's suspicions that mm -hmm. they didn't actually tell us because we didn't ask. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't actually remember what the final decision was, but it went into the mix of things that yeah. had to be considered. Yeah. Very cool. Um, right. Let's still go back to the segue of you then actually, how did you come to PwC? Oh yes. Yes. So that, that's still going on, isn't it? <laughs> You're about halfway through your life. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that's pretty much it. So we, we, we got to a certain point. Um, in the engineering consultancy and um, uh, they were going through uh, quite a lot of restructuring and acquisition and um, it, I just um, I just got an opportunity from somebody who I knew was working in PwC to help out with some stuff that they were doing um, just in just in general conversations and then the guy just went well do you want to just you know, move move companies, and uh, and just work full time for us. Uh, and I just and I did, and that was it. Um, and at the time, like, we were put into the consulting data and analytics group. Um, sorry, I was put. I joined the consulting data and analytics group in uh, PwC Sydney, and um, you know, we just kept. Um, uh, we got access to. Um, different kind of clients. Um, the questions were more business oriented rather than engineering oriented. Mm -hmm. um, and the industries were quite a bit wider as well. Um, um, and we just developed uh, a group there. Um, so when I joined, it was just me and another person who was simulation people. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I moved to UK, uh, I think they had about eight people that were doing simulation there. Let's put some time frame around this. So when, when did you join and when did you then move to the UK? Um, so let me just work back. I think, so we moved to UK in 2015 and I joined in 2013. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, I think that's and about it. When you joined, there was one other person doing simulation, and then you grew to eight in the space yeah. of years. So, what what was your um, how did PwC in Sydney in Australia see simulation at the time, and how has that changed? Do you think? They well, they, they didn't really. I mean, the, the whole the whole engagement with analytics was quite um, 
rooted in a lot of the uh, existing practices. So they pulled in people that have done economics, they've done maybe actuarial work, they've done data management work, they've they hired a whole bunch of people which were somewhat not quite typical for PwC. So people with like masters in, of math or PhDs and they um, just to build up like a like an analytics function within mm -hmm. within the company and um, and uh, just they went down the list of things and they and they said well we need some people to understand machine learning yep that's those guys we need to understand have some people who understand big data that's those guys um, and then one of the people uh, that was in a team was seconded actually from the US firm where he was um, actually part of the group that um, and that uh, is led by I think um, by the guys that uh, you know quite prominent in in the simulation field when you when it comes to PwC mm -hmm. and so he was very familiar with how the simulation can be used in general and he he identified kind of as a need within the group as well and communicating that to the partners and then the partners uh, went out and um, found us uh, or me rather and, and another person and that was and that's how we ended up uh, joining that group um, and as part of that they they essentially kind of we spent quite a bit of time communicating sort of the kind of work that can be done using simulation and how it fits with the normal operation of PwC and how uh, it can improve certain types of um, assignments mm -hmm. and uh, they kind of saw it as a good thing and um, started investing in uh, expanding their capability. So when I when I go to simulation conferences and uh, the AnyLogic conference in particular, uh, PwC is always there quite prominently. Yep. Yep. And what I perceive from um, the guys presenting and the topics that they cover, it seems to me PwC is pushing simulation and tries to be a, a thought leader in this space. Do you think do you think that's a fair statement? Is that your do you see uh, that today as well? So I mean, yeah, PwC as a company is driven by the need to be accountable. If I again, it's my personal opinion, it's my personal observation, but it's very everything that you do in PwC has to be explainable. You know, you have to be able to like say why this is like this you know mm -hmm. uh, it's it's the auditing nature of the firm and it impacts um everything that that people do and um and i think that uh, uh, um the stimulation is 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 very helpful in, in in that kind of scenarios because um you know you can look at you can look at things in certain of certain complexity and from certain aspect of interaction of different um, subsystems together that produces emergent behavior, which is quite hard to explain. But if you use simulation, you can explain it. Mm -hmm. um, and that addresses things like, you know, the riskiness of certain decisions, um, the outcomes of certain initiatives, the investment justification and scope, you know, that, those kinds of things, which are very... Um, you know that's 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 very related to the kind of work that PwC does in consulting space. 
So what's your work looking like uh, these days? What kind of models do you actually build and what kind of clients are you working for? What's your day-to-day -day work like? So we're trying to, um, I mean, it's, an, it's a very big company, obviously, PwC. It's a very... What is it, 300,000? Oh God, I don't, I don't know. Globally, yeah, I think maybe it's somewhere in that scale. Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite um, multifaceted, you know, both in the levels at which they engage the companies, as well as the sectors across which they're engaged companies. And um, there is so most most of the work that we that I that I do is not simulation only work. It's supporting other consulting engagements. And um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give the consultants tools that they can use to explore the what ifs that they that they that are formulated as part of hypothesis based kind of um, work around system understanding and transformation. So and that's deal... that's uh, like the common consulting speak, right? Hypothesis-based yeah. working yeah. basically means we go to a client, they tell us what their problem is, and then we say, we think the reason for that is X, and now we're going to test it if that's actually different. Yeah, so, so that's kind of, yeah, this is when they have problems that can be tested like that, but sometimes what they do is they basically say okay um we have so for example we have a process that is currently we we employ 30 people there we need and it's and it's doing 10,000 transactions a month and we need it to be 30,000 transactions but we don't want to hire any more people mm -hmm. or, or we want to um hire a very small number of people what kind of people do we need and why and what else should we buy you know and when uh, you say you support uh, pwc teams to answer these kind of questions and do these what if analysis do they uh, do they come to you do people know about you or do you have does your team have to sort of promote the kind of skills that you have um no we definitely have to promote it is it's a, it's one of those you know it's a it's a very big company and everybody has a day job you know they don't it's very hard for them um, to deal, because uh, you know we're not the only people in PwC that have something to convince people about. You know, there's <laughs> there's obviously people in well put. in other parts that are that are operating, and again with valid not not simulation but other valid approaches that can be beneficial to clients. You know, around certain kinds of advice in finance or certain kinds of advice in human resource. I, I mean, it's just. It's it's very huge. It's like anything anything you need done, you can get done in that place. Mm -hmm. And um, so, we certainly trying to be very targeted. Um, we certainly try to relate it to the strategic initiatives that are that appear as headline topics across industries. Um, and uh, we try to reach out to partners as much as possible, and and um, and show how we can help and um, build up, obviously also try to, because as I said, there's some experience of that work in US, in Australia, and we try to kind of link across globally, share, you know, ideas and resources and, and, uh, and try to kind of check the trends, you know, because sometimes you can see something happening in US and you go, oh, eventually it's gonna be here in this way or vice versa. Um, 
something happening like in Europe, you know, and we know that eventually it's going to hit Asia, US in a certain way. And we basically go, oh, okay, well, we can do it this way. Um, so, and but it always comes down to not just being in the ivory tower. You know, you always have to find a way that identify how the simulation can help people do the work that they already do as a, as a kind of to support them in a you know commercially viable way that makes financial sense mm-hmm. and at the same time not be like a black box because you know we're talking about people with serious relationships with the clients and they they would be very risk averse they would they would be very you know averse to the idea of bringing somebody to the table if they don't completely understand or or know what to expect in that situation so you have to you have to be really you know you have to really understand what people are trying to do how you can help them how you can make sure that they're not exposed to kind of unwanted levels of risk um how the relationships are maintained and and sometimes you know you have to walk away like it's just like okay this this is not this is what we do this is we're ready to go we can help you this way but we will leave it up to you guys and um you guys can can call us when you when you need us cool um, I, I love the keyword of the the not being a black bo- black box tool. I had that quite a bit recently in my uh, consulting gigs, trying to convince people that simulation is a is a useful tool because it's it's inherently not black box. Yeah. Um, and we already spoke a little bit before we recorded actually where you said simulation is a great consulting tool, which is actually my my little spiel that I typically try to talk to people. Uh, my line is simulation is the, the best consulting tool that nobody knows about. <laughs> so it sounded like you you kind of agree, but you also saw some some advantages and disadvantages. Can you maybe share a little bit about that? What do you think about that? Well, yeah. So um, it, it's it is a bit. It's the, the biggest thing I guess that I found is that very often the hypothesis based approach kind of bifurcates the future the hypothesis is either proven or disproven you know that's kind of the, how the consultancy mm-hmm. would sees the future from the point of view of now and the current problem when you build a simulation very often what happens is the hypothesis is neither proven or disproven it is shown to operate a certain way in certain times mm-hmm. and there's actually more information created that requires the follow-up and sometimes that is actually not what the situation calls for. So you're saying it's not the, what the client wants is a yes or no, and what we give him with the simulation is it depends. Yeah, it's, it depends. And, 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 uh, and, it's, and it's, not, it's not about being right or wrong or accurate or inaccurate. It's about having something that is useful to the current situation. Mm-hmm. And it's very, um, you know that stuff. That that stuff really comes with. Um, um, I'm not saying that simulation can can't be used in that way, but sometimes in some situations it does it does take a lot of time and effort for that particular decision context to achieve something that could be achieved using simpler methods um, by a combination of static models, perhaps in Excel, perhaps in something else. And um, kind of uh, uh, buy-in from clients or 
uh, SMEs, you know, like uh, field experts um, or past experiences or something like that. So in those situations, you just kind of have to go, um, you know, you, you can't really compete with in, in that kind of environment because frankly, people are more comfortable with the um, existing state of art and approaches that they're used to. So you're saying sometimes you just run into either it doesn't just doesn't make sense to use it or sometimes it's not possible to actually employ it because there are too many resistances. Yeah, it's it's there's there's too many. It's something like you can you can qualify you can qualify the situation and go in this particular case it's actually better if people go with what they've planned to do uh, by combining you know. Um, expert knowledge, historical information, um, and some assumption-based modeling in a in Excel or another, or like some some other static calculation. Um, my my rule of thumb for when simulation may be worth the effort is when there you can see the system that has some kind of dynamically changing properties that create far too many possibilities. Um, such that if you kind of start average, averaging things down, you can't effectively reproduce a bad scenario. Mm -hmm. um, and um, where even the experts are kind of scratching their head. That's, and, and when there is a possible, very bad possible downside, like some kind of exponential possibility of some kind of exponential loss, you know, yeah. like, a, like a severe injury or very high financial dropout or something like that. I talked to a, uh, yeah. that that resonates because I talked to a like a simulation professor a few weeks ago, and I asked him why do you think simulation is not such a big thing like analytics or big data blah 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 you know why is it not a hype although it's so powerful and useful and he said something very similar to you it, he said essentially simulation is always just called to the rescue when the experts scratch their head or when a bad decision has already been made. You know, or when it's a really, really, really tough decision that does not have a right or wrong answer, it's just a gray, it depends. And these are like the no-win scenarios for yeah. like the simulation community. I thought that was a really interesting thought. It's, well, I mean, there are no-win scenarios for community, but they exist in the real world and actually quite often, more often than probably people want to admit. And, um, and being able to prime the field for recognizing that um, you know, you, you, you can actually engage with this complex problem and this is one of the tools that can help you such that in the end of it all, you, you will understand how the system operates, you know, what, what, is the, what is the compounding effect that makes it so hard to examine or what sort of things about it that obscures the, the kernel of, of truth for you. And you can achieve that via simulation. If, if people can... If you have the conversation often enough, eventually people kind of, um, uh, you know, understand that that's something that can be done, because most of the time it's not for the lack of imagination. It's mostly just for lack of information that people don't engage with, with like don't don't go down the simulation path. Yeah, I agree. I think, and if they have a little bit of information, it's typically they see us as this dung beetle you know they they pick up the shitty problems and try to solve those <laughs> and i'm i'm trying to uh, push for a more positive view 
where we say simulation is a great consulting tool because you can do so many pro uh, proactive things like use it for brainstorming, use it to understand the client system when you talk to him, these kind of upfront simple tasks that don't give you a numeric answer but help you understand the system. Uh, I think one of the previous interviews with Stefan Benson, uh, he's also massively talking about that, right? We should use simulation in a much, much broader context, not just to answer those very, very hard questions numerically. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, the numerical is, is, a, is a very welcome byproduct of some of that, mm -hmm. um, but it's not the end all and be all. Um, I mean, I've been in situations where, um, uh, you know, it, it kind of backfired a little bit where, you know, people go and, and the experts say, oh, this kind of change is going to save you, let's say, 20% or something like that. And they're actually correct in the context of that they looked at. But if you simulate the system and kind of look at the constraints imposed upon it by things that the experts perhaps didn't consider in their answer, you realize that the maximum saving can be in the order like much, much less, you mm -hmm. know, in an order like 5%. And that creates like this unfortunate friction and that, that you kind of go like, well, um, you know, technically we're both right, you know, and, um, and, and we're both operating on imperfect information. Like they, they assume certain things about the rest of the world. I assume certain things about some other parts of the world. So um, it's very hard to kind of, um, it's very hard to kind of then go to a client when you can't even get your, your own house in order. And, um, and that is only can be sold by having like, there's another thing that I found is that um, very often simulation is very finite. You know, you start a build, start off building a model, and you're not finished until you until it produces some sort of result. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's more useful to start to actually build smaller models or simpler models, just abandon them, start a new one that looks at different aspect, and find a way to like combine the output somehow. Very um, good point. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a very it's a hard one. Like that that is that's another thing that really is I've learned it by just stepping on that set of rakes and getting hit in my face over and over. Um, but it's not in any books that I've read or um, well, I've heard. I mean, again, in conversations with other practitioners, it's something that I, I think we shared as an opinion. But yeah, it's it's a hard one. I, I liked um, the last interview I did with Philippe Haro, who is like a freelance simulation guy. He, he was basically saying, any model that takes me more than four weeks, I don't do it. Yeah. I just work up until four weeks and then it gets too complicated. It's not fun anymore. So yeah. that, was, that was one approach to get around that. That's very true. I mean, you, you know, once you, once you strip out the technicalities of, you know, user interface design and data management, if the, if the processes themselves is, uh, you know, getting into the area of, more than certain amount of time, then either you know you're using imperfect information, or you're making too many assumptions, or it's just too detailed and too complex, really, representation. On the other hand, I think we're probably also talking a little bit in our little consulting bubble because uh, the other host of this podcast, Jacob Ingalls, uh, yeah. he works for for FedEx, and I think you know he has to build these extremely big, extremely accurate models 
because they need to know exactly that parcel where is it going to be tomorrow at 12:33, and that's you know that's a part of simulation that also exists. Of course, but 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 that's I mean uh, it's that is not a consulting tool in that case. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, so, Artem, what's happening next for you then? Um, so we're trying to um, kind of uh, some like a lot of the work that I do is um, speculative design, supporting speculative design by other people, you know, speculative service design. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, the stuff that I run into is essentially, it has like three, well, no, it's actually just two, two varieties of things. One is, yeah, we kind of see the simulation is useful, but we don't understand how you can build it by just talking to people and looking at some data. We don't understand the conversion process. Mm -hmm. We find it a bit risky. Can you, uh, can, and we're not particularly happy with how long it would take. Can you just give us an example? So there is, so I'm, I'm going through a number of exercises within PwC where I've engaged with people in industries um, and we're looking for some canonical problems in those industries that they have identified as you know something that's happening in the industry right now. And uh, we are gonna build a number of, well, we actually already have um, a number of simulations that can be used by consultants as the first point of kind of exploration before they, before, you know, before they actually start looking at specific user experience, user example. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, most people, um, most consultants in PwC are very, you know, they're, they're very knowledgeable in their specific areas, you know, sectors and industries and types of uh, lines of, you know, types of functions that they're trying to um, consult on. And um, they're a great wealth of knowledge that, that, that they have in their heads. And we're just trying to get some of that stuff out, put in the simulation, and then when we go to a client, we say, hey, look, we already actually have three quarters of the job done. If you give us this data and this detail, we can fill out your version of this and kind of use that to answer your questions. Very cool. So just addressing, you know, the, the, um, the time, to, time, to, time to kind of first information, time to uh, time and cost to first information aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's number one. Number two is, there is quite a lot of, um, again, in speculative service design, there's quite a big focus on artificial intelligence now. You know, how it can, how can actually, instead of just being a proof of concept, how can it actually be deployed in a complex organization with a lot of existing technology and technical data associated with it and, you know, all the other requirements such as, you know, regulatory compliance and, taxation and all this other business. And that's a very, that's something that experts, well, there's not a lot of experts that even have this knowledge because there's not a lot of examples where something like that's been done. Um, and this is again, we, we're trying to kind of um, support some of that work. So um, collect enough information, talk to the people, build out the view, 
and then start going, okay, well, what if this is now, this part here now is, you know, uh, digitized, for example, you know, or this whole process disappears. Um, what's going to happen to the work, the data that it relies on and produces? Um, how's it going to change the way that you manage your systems, your customers, your employees? And uh, what, what, how long is it going to take you to get there? What are the intermediate steps are? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of that is driven by the fact that a lot of companies have identified that they're collecting a lot of data now, but they're not particularly good at using it. Mm -hmm. So, and that the simulation is one way to show like, well, actually, you know, you can, you can kind of take advantage of certain patterns and escalate them to your benefit if you just adjust your systems in a way that can actually, you know, perform at that scale. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds very forward thinking, just like my view of PwC. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean the, the stuff that I think they've been talking about in conferences is another aspect of it where what they're trying to do is they're trying to actually, when you have an AI um, component of some kind or a system, you can actually build a little simulated world around it and then show what it would do under certain conditions that perhaps you don't have a history of. Mm -hmm. And that's very, that is very important because it addresses some of the anxiety around um, the use of that in business world. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I think we're coming to the end of our time. Okay. Uh, do you have any final advice for people who, who are just maybe starting out as simulation consultants or are thinking about going into this space? Some mm. work maybe of your past that you would avoid in the future? Um, I would actually say, I think if, if somebody's thinking of going into that as, and, and, um, and doing this, um, there's two pieces of advice I would actually give the one is is you know never kind of um be comfortable with technology mm -hmm. like it's it's not um the number of times uh, you know i i took advantage of the fact that my back my original background is software engineer not necessarily when i build a simulation but when i actually deal with systems that collect data mm -hmm. um you know, it's countless, you know, um, just being able to understand the technical landscape in which data is collected um, is, is very important. Um, so if you're, if you're the kind of person who doesn't understand that, find somebody who does, or at least put out, out a requirement when, you, when you're about to do some kind of work that you need that kind of person. Yeah. Um, because the, the understanding, not just, not just having the data, but how it was collected, and why um, is is it can be quite important at how it at how you then use to simulate things. Very true. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, I mean, and that's a that's a that's a major shortcoming of my own is that I'm actually quite colorblind and I'm I'm very bad at representing data effectively. Um, and visualizations like it takes me a long time to put something together mm -hmm. so um you know do spend time to to understand the psychology of the person you try you're communicating to 
and focus on kind of the experience of that person as they consume the outputs of the simulation. Mm -hmm. That that is I cannot stress enough how important that aspect is because if you get that right, then even simple models that abstract a lot of information can still help them understand it. And if they do, then you've done your job. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I had a uh, I was building one simulation model and my make you know the the partner, the consulting partner, my boss essentially was quite happy, but said it looks shit. <laughs> buys it up and I thought oh it's a typical consulting you know just need to look good uh, so we we got in touch with one of our designers and they had no about, idea about programming coding or the simulation software at all but they designed the user interface and we just built it in the simulation tool and then we had this rocket space user interface that the client loved and other, other other consultant partners also love. So you can then show that to other people and just advertise your own skills a lot more because it grabs their attention so much quicker when it looks good. Yeah. Completely. It's, I mean, it's just, it's just maintaining, because it's, it's one of those things I found that I read this, uh, some theory about the, the pagination theory. Every time you change page in sufficient amount, people tend to blank and forget what happened before. Like it's every time you cross the doorway, you you have like this little amnesia and people mm -hmm. are like oh wait a second why why did I come here you know oh I'm looking for my keys you know that kind of stuff you have like this little bit of forgetfulness and I find that when you when you build in a simulation interface it's the same thing you know every time this you, you do something um, sufficiently you know differential on the screen people have difficulty keeping the people keeping their hand on the um, on this thread of reason that you're trying to kind of take them down. Um, and it's a really, like sometimes it's very hard to even tell that. Like they, you'd be like, yep, okay, this is what it is. Do you understand? Yes, I do. And then it turns out that they don't, you know? Yeah. So true. Great. Adam, thank you very, very much for your time and, and sharing all those insights. It was, yep. I think we went along your, your life path chronologically, but at the same time, always had these segues along some very interesting philosophical things. That was, that was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Um, well, thank you very yes. much. Uh, and, and thank you so much for joining Sintalk. All right. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks. Thanks for having me. And I, I did find it very enjoyable as well. It's not very often I get to, um, you know, wax lyrically on these topics. <laughs> um, but when I do, you know, um, I wish I had a beer at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> next time. Um, next time yeah, next time. Next time you're in London, you know, if you ever um, kind of make it over here, um, I'd be happy to catch up and discuss it further. Cool. Thank you so much.